Chapter 50, Part 4 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 5, Chapter 50, Part 4. The communication of ideas requires a solemnitude of thought and language. The discourse of a philosopher would vibrate without effect on the ear of a peasant. Yet how minute is the distance of their understandings, if it be compared with the contact of an infinite and a finite mind, with the word of God expressed by the tongue or the pen of a mortal? The inspiration of the Hebrew prophets, of the apostles and evangelists of Christ, might not be incompatible with the exercise of their reason and memory, and the diversity of their genius is strongly marked in the style and composition of the books of the Old and New Testament. But Muhammad was content with a character more humble, yet more sublime, of a simple editor. The substance of the Quran, according to himself or his disciples, is uncreated and eternal, subsisting in the essence of the deity, inscribed with the pen of light on the table of his everlasting decrees. A paper copy, in the volume of silk and gems, was brought down to the lowest heaven by the angel Gabriel, who, under the Jewish economy, had indeed been dispatched on the most important errands, and this trusty messenger successively revealed the chapters and verses to the Arabian prophet. Instead of a perpetual and perfect measure of the divine will, the fragments of the Quran were produced at the discretion of Muhammad. Each revelation is suited to the emergencies of his policy or passion, and all contradiction is removed by the saving maxim that any text of scripture is abrogated or modified by any subsequent passage. The word of God and of the apostle was diligently recorded by his disciples on palm leaves and the shoulder bones of a mutton and the pages, without order or connection, were cast into a domestic chest in the custody of one of his wives. Two years after the death of Mohammed, the sacred volume was collected and published by his friend and successor, Abu Bekr. The work was revised by the Caliph Uthman in the thirtieth year of the Hegira, and the various editions of the Quran assert the same miraculous privilege of an uniform and incorruptible text. In the spirit of enthusiasm or vanity, the prophet rests the truth of his mission on the merit of his book, audaciously challenges both men and angels to imitate the beauties of a single page, and presumes to assert that God alone could dictate this incomparable performance. This argument is most powerfully addressed to the devout Arabian, whose mind is attuned to faith and rapture, whose ear is delighted by the music of sounds, and whose ignorance is incapable of comparing the productions of human genius. The harmony and copiousness of style will not reach, in a version, the European infidel. He will peruse with impatience the endless, incoherent rhapsody of fable, and precept, and declamation, which seldom excites a sentiment, or an idea, which sometimes crawls in the dust, and is sometimes lost in the clouds. The divine attributes exalt the fancy of the Arabian missionary, but his loftiest strains must yield to the sublime simplicity of the book of Job composed in a remote age, in the same country, and in the same language. If the composition of the Koran exceeds the faculties of a man, to what superior intelligence should we ascribe the Iliad of Homer, or the Philippics of Demosthenes? In all religions, the life of the founder supplies the silence of his written revelation. The sayings of Muhammad 
were so many lessons of truth, his actions so many examples of virtue, and the public and private memorials were preserved by his wives and companions. At the end of two hundred years, the Sana, or Oral Law, was fixed and consecrated by the labors of al-Bukhari, who discriminated 7,273 genuine traditions from a mass of 300,000 reports of a more doubtful or spurious character. Each day the pious author prayed in the temple of Mecca, and performed his ablutions with the water of Zemzem. The pages were successively deposited on the pulpit, and the sepulchre of the apostle, and the work has been approved by the four orthodox sects of the Sonites. The mission of the ancient prophets, of Moses and of Jesus, had been confirmed by many splendid prodigies, and Mohammed was repeatedly urged by the inhabitants of Mecca and Medina to produce a similar evidence of his divine legation, to call down from heaven the angel or the volume of his revelation, to create a garden in the desert or to kindle a conflagration in the unbelieving city. As often as he is pressed by the demands of the Koreish, he involves himself in the obscure boast of vision and prophecy, appeals to the internal proofs of his doctrine, and shields himself behind the providence of God, who refuses those signs and wonders that would deprecate the merit of faith and aggravate the guilt of infidelity. But the modest or angry tone of his apologies betrays his weakness and vexation, and these passages of scandal establish beyond suspicion the integrity of the Koran. The votaries of Mohammed are more assured than himself of his miraculous gifts, and their confidence and credulity increase as they are further removed from the time and place of his spiritual exploits. They believe, or affirm, that trees went forth to meet him, that he was saluted by stones, that water gushed from his fingers, that he fed the hungry, cured the sick, and raised the dead, that a beam groaned to him, that a camel complained to him, that a shoulder of mutton informed him of its being poisoned, and that both animate and inanimate nature were equally subject to the apostle of God. His dream of a nocturnal journey is seriously described as a real and corporal transaction. A mysterious animal, the Borak, conveyed him from the temple of Mecca to that of Jerusalem. With his companion, Gabriel, he successively ascended the seven heavens, and received and repaid the salutations of the patriarchs, the prophets, and the angels in their respective mansions. Beyond the seventh heaven, Muhammad alone was permitted to proceed. He passed the veil of unity, approached within two bowshots of the throne, and felt a cold that pierced him to the heart when his shoulder was touched by the hand of God. After this familiar, though important, conversation, he again descended to Jerusalem, remounted the Barak, returned to Mecca, and performed in the tenth part of the night the journey of many thousand years. According to another legend, the apostle confounded in a national assembly the malicious charge of the Koreish. His resistless word split asunder the orb of the moon. The obedient planet stooped from her station in the sky, accomplished the seven revolutions around the Kaaba, saluted Muhammad in the Arabian tongue, and suddenly contracting her dimensions, entered at the collar and issued forth through the sleeve of his shirt. The vulgar are amused with these marvelous tales, but the gravest of the Mussulman doctors imitate the modesty of their master and indulge a latitude of faith or interpretation. They might speciously allege that in preaching the religion it was needless to violate the harmony of nature, that a creed unclouded with mystery may be excused from miracles, and that the sword of Muhammad 
was not less potent than the rod of Moses. The polytheist is oppressed and distracted by the variety of superstition. A thousand rites of Egyptian origin were interwoven with the essence of the Mosaic law, and the spirit of the gospel had evaporated in the pageantry of the church. The prophet of Mecca was tempted by prejudice, or policy, or patriotism, to sanctify the rites of the Arabians, and the custom of visiting the holy stone of the Kaaba. But the precepts of Mohammed himself inculcate a more simple and rational piety. Prayer, fasting, and alms are the religious duties of a Mussulman. He is encouraged to hope that prayer will carry him halfway to God, fasting will bring him to the door of his palace, and alms will gain him admittance. 1. According to the tradition of the nocturnal journey, the apostle, in his personal conference with the deity, was commanded to impose on his disciples the daily obligation of fifty prayers. By the advice of Moses, he applied for an alleviation of this intolerable burden. The number was gradually reduced to five, without any dispensation of business or pleasure, or time or place. The devotion of the faithful is repeated at daybreak, at noon, in the afternoon, in the evening, and at the first watch of the night, and in the present decay of religious fervor, our travelers are edified by the profound humility and attention of the Turks and the Persians. Cleanliness is the key of prayer. The frequent lustration of the hands, the face, and the body, which was practiced of old by the Arabs, is solemnly enjoined by the Koran, and a permission is formally granted to supply with sand the scarcity of water. The words and attitudes of supplication, as it is performed either sitting or standing or prostrate on the ground, are prescribed by custom or authority. But the prayer is poured forth in short and fervent ejaculations. The measure of zeal is not exhausted by a tedious liturgy, and each Mussulman for his own person is invested with the character of a priest. Among the theists who reject the use of images, it has been found necessary to restrain the wanderings of the fancy by directing the eye and the thought towards a kepla or visible point of the horizon. The prophet was at first inclined to gratify the Jews by the choice of Jerusalem, but he soon returned to a more natural partiality, and five times every day the eyes of the nation at Atraskan, at Fez, at Delhi, are devoutly turned to the holy temple of Mecca. Yet every spot for the service of God is equally pure. The Mohammedans indifferently pray in their chambers or in the street. As a distinction from the Jews and Christians, the Friday in each week is set apart for the useful institution of public worship. The people is assembled in their mosques, and the Iman, some respectable elder, ascends the pulpit to begin the prayer and to pronounce the sermon. But the Mohammedan religion is destitute of priesthood or sacrifice, and the independent spirit of fanaticism looks down with contempt on the ministers and slaves of superstition. 2. The voluntary penance of the ascetics, the torment and the glory of their lives, was odious to a prophet, who censured in his companions a rash vow of abstaining from flesh and women and sleep, and firmly declared that he would suffer no monks in his religion. Yet he instituted, in each year, a fast of thirty days, and strenuously recommended the observance as a discipline which purifies the soul and subdues the body, as a salutary exercise of obedience to the will of God and his apostle. During the month of Ramadan, from the rising to the setting of the sun, the Mussulman abstains from eating, and women, and baths, and perfumes, and from all nourishment that can restore his strength, from all pleasure that can gratify his senses. 
In the revolution of the lunar year, the Ramadan coincides by turns with the winter cold and the summer heat, and the patient martyr, without assuaging his thirst with a drop of water, must expect the close of a tedious and sultry day. The interdiction of wine, peculiar to some orders of the priests or hermits, is converted by Mohammed alone into a positive and general law, and a considerable portion of the globe has abjured, at his command, the use of that salutary, though dangerous, liquor. These painful restraints are, doubtless, infringed by the libertine, and eluded by the hypocrite, but the legislator, by whom they are enacted, cannot surely be accused of alluring his proselytes by the indulgence of their sensual appetites. 3. The charity of the Mohammedans descends to the animal creation, and the Koran repeatedly inculcates, not as a merit, but as a strict and indispensable duty, the relief of the indigent and unfortunate. Mohammed, perhaps, is the only lawgiver who has defined the precise measure of charity. The standard may vary with the degree and nature of property, as it consists either in money, or corn, or cattle, in fruits, or merchandise. But the Mussulman does not accomplish the law, unless he bestows a truth of his revenue, and, if his consciousness accuses him of fraud or extortion, the tenth, under the idea of restitution, is enlarged to a fifth. Benevolence is the foundation of justice, since we are forbid to injure those whom we are bound to assist. A prophet may reveal the secrets of heaven and futurity, but in his moral precepts he can only repeat the lessons of his own hearts. The two articles of belief, and the four practical duties of the Islam, are guarded by rewards and punishments, and the faith of the Mussulman is devoutly fixed on the event of the judgment and the last day. The prophet has not presumed to determine the moment of that awful catastrophe, though he darkly announces the signs, both in heaven and earth, which will precede the universal dissolution, when life shall be destroyed and the order of creation shall be confounded in the primitive chaos. At the blast of the trumpet new worlds will start into being. Angels, genii, and men will arise from the dead, and the human soul will again be united to the body. The doctrine of resurrection was first entertained by the Egyptians, and their mummies were embalmed. Their pyramids were consecrated to preserve the ancient mansion of the souls during a period of three thousand years. But the attempt is partial and unavailing, and it is with a more philosophic spirit that Mohammed relies on the omnipotence of the Creator, whose word can reanimate the breathless clay, and collect the innumerable atoms which no longer retain their form or substance. The intermediate state of the soul it is hard to describe, and those who most firmly believe her immaterial nature are at a loss to understand how she can think or act without the agency of the organs of sense. The reunion of the soul and body will be followed by the final judgment of mankind, and in his copy of the Magian picture, the prophet has too faithfully represented the forms of proceeding, and even the slow and successive operations of an earthly tribunal. By his intolerant adversaries he is upbraided for extending, even to themselves, the hope of salvation, for asserting the blackest heresy, that every man who believes in God and accomplishes good works may expect in the last day a favorable sentence. Such rational indifference is ill-adapted to the character of a fanatic, nor is it probable that a messenger from heaven should deprecate the value and necessity of his own revelation. In the idiom of the Quran, the belief of God is inseparable from that of Mohammed. The good works are those which he has enjoined, and the two qualifications imply the profession of Islam, to which all nations and all sects are equally invited. Their spiritual blindness, though excused by ignorance and crowned with virtue, 
will be scourged with everlasting torments, and the tears which Mohammed shed over the tomb of his mother, for whom he was forbidden to pray, display a striking contrast of humanity and enthusiasm. The doom of the infidels is common. The measure of their guilt and punishment is determined by the degree of evidence which they have rejected, by the magnitude of the heirs which they have entertained. The internal mansions of the Christians, the Jews, the Sabians, the Magians, and the idolaters are sunk below each other in the abyss, and the lowest hell is reserved for the faithless hypocrites who have assumed the mask of religion. After the greater part of mankind has been condemned for their opinions, the true believers only will be judged by their actions. The good and evil of each Mussulman will be accurately weighed in a real or allegorical balance, and a singular mode of compensation will be allowed for the payment of injuries. The aggressor will refund an equivalent of his own good actions for the benefit of the portion whom he has wronged, and if he should be destitute of any moral property, the weight of his sins will be loaded with an adequate share of the demerits of the sufferer. According, as the shares of guilt or virtue shall preponderate, the sentence will be pronounced, and all, without distraction, will pass over the sharp and perilous bridge of the abyss. But the innocent, treading in the footsteps of Mohammed, will gloriously enter the gates of paradise, while the guilty will fall into the first and mildest of the seven hells. The term of expiration will vary from nine hundred to seven thousand years. But the prophet has judiciously promised that all his disciples, whatever may be their sins, shall be saved by their own faith and his intercession from internal damnation. It is not surprising that superstition should act more powerfully on the fears of her votaries, since the human fancy can paint with more energy the misery than the bliss of a future life. With the two simple elements of darkness and fire, we create a sensation of pain, which may be aggravated to an infinite degree by the idea of endless duration. But the same idea operates with an opposite effect on the continuity of pleasure, and too much of our patient enjoyments is obtained from the relief or the comparison of evil. It is natural enough that an Arabian prophet should dwell with rapture on the groves, the fountains, and the rivers of paradise, but instead of inspiring the blessed inhabitants with a liberal taste for harmony and science, conversation and friendship, he idly celebrates the pearls and diamonds, the robes of silk, the palaces of marble, dishes of gold, rich wines, artificial dainties, numerous attendants, and the whole train of sensual and costly luxury, which becomes insipid to the owner, even in the short period of this mortal life. 72. Horus, or black-eyed girls of resplendent beauty, blooming youth, virgin purity, and exquisite sensibility, will be created for the use of the meanest believer. A moment of pleasure will be prolonged to a thousand years, and his faculties will be increased a hundredfold to render him worthy of his felicity. Notwithstanding a vulgar prejudice, the gates of heaven will be opened to both sexes, but Mohammed has not specified the male companions of the female elect, lest he should either alarm the jealousy of their former husbands, or disturb the felicity by the suspicion of an everlasting marriage. This image of a carnal paradise has provoked the indignation, perhaps the envy, of the monks. They declaim against the impure religion of Mohammed, and his modest apologists are driven to the poor excuse of figures and allegories. But the sounder and more consistent party adhere, without shame, to the literal interpretation of the Koran. Useless would be the resurrection of the body, unless it were restored to its possession and exercise of its worthiest faculties 
and the union of sensual and intellectual enjoyment is requisite to complete the happiness of the double animal, the perfect man. Yet the joys of the Mohammedan paradise will not be confined to the indulgence of luxury and appetite, and the prophet has expressly declared that all meaner happiness will be forgotten and despised by the saints and martyrs who will be admitted to the beatitude or the divine vision. The first and most ardent conquests of Mohammed were those of his wife, his servant, his pupil, and his friend, since he presented himself as a prophet to those who were most conversant with his infirmities as a man. Yet Khadija believed the words, and cherished the glory of her husband. The obsequious and affectionate Zayid was tempted by the prospect of freedom. The illustrious Ali, the son of Abu Talib, embraced the sentiments of his cousin with the spirit of a youthful hero, and the wealth, the moderation, and veracity of Abu Bekr confirmed the religion of the prophet whom he was destined to succeed. By his persuasion, ten of the most respectable citizens of Mecca were introduced to the private lessons of Islam. They yielded to the voice of reason and enthusiasm. They repeated the fundamental creed, There is but one God, and Muhammad is the apostle of God. And their faith, even in this life, was rewarded with riches and honors, with the command of armies and the government of kingdoms. Three years were silently employed in the conversion of fourteen proselytes, the first fruits of his mission. But in the fourth year he assumed the prophetic office, and resolving to impart to his family the light of divine truth, he prepared a banquet, a lamb, it is said, and a bowl of milk for the entertainment of forty guests of the race of Hashim. Friends and kinsmen, said Mohammed to the assembly, I offer you, and I alone can offer the most precious of gifts, the treasures of this world and of the world to come. God has commanded me to call you to his service. Who among you will support my burden? Who among you will be my companion and my vizier? No answer was returned, till the silence of astonishment and doubt and contempt was at length broken by the impatient courage of Ali, a youth in the fourteenth year of his age. O prophet, I am the man. Whosoever rises against me, I will dash out his teeth, tear out his eyes, break his legs, rip up his belly. O prophet, I will be thy vizier over them. Mohammed accepted his offer with transport and Abu Talib was ironically exhorted to respect the superior dignity of his son. In a more serious tone, the father of Ali advised his nephew to relinquish his impracticable design. Spare your remonstrances, replied the intrepid fanatic to his uncle and benefactor. If they should place the sun on my right hand and the moon on my left, they should not divert me from my course. He persevered ten years in the exercise of his mission, and the religion which has overspread the east and the west, advanced with a slow and painful progress within the walls of Mecca. Yet Mohammed enjoyed the satisfaction of beholding the increase of his infant congregation of Unitarians, who revered him as a prophet, and to whom he seasonably dispensed the spiritual nourishment of the Koran. The number of proselytes may be esteemed by the absence of eighty-three men and eighteen women, who retired to Ethiopia in the seventh year of his mission, and his party was fortified by the timely conversion of his uncle Hamza, and of the fierce and inflexible Omar, who signalized in the cause of Islam the same zeal which he exerted for its destruction. Nor was the charity of Mohammed confined to the tribe of Koreish, or the precinct of Mecca. On solemn festivals, in the days of pilgrimage, he frequented the Kaaba, accosted the strangers of every tribe, 
and urged both in private converse and public discourse the belief and worship of a sole deity. Conscious of his reason and of his weakness, he asserted the liberty of conscience and disclaimed the use of religious violence. But he called the Arabs to repentance and conjured them to remember the ancient idolaters of Ad and Thamud, whom the divine justice had swept away from the face of the earth. End of chapter 50, part 4